We're working our way through 2 Corinthians. We're at the beginning. We find ourselves in chapter 3 here today. Most of us at one time in our life have either written or received love letters. Maybe it was because of a forced stint in the military. Maybe it was just uh, the summer months away from college and girlfriend. Maybe it was a protracted business trip. Maybe one of the unfortunate things about the communication today is that we use email and maybe even text. So nothing is really beautiful and permanent like letter writing can be. When I was a student at Bob Jones University, the art form of love letter writing reached its zenith, at least in my life. It was the first time in my life that I really made a serious attempt at improving my penmanship, too, because I knew those letters were going to be read and evaluated. Bob Jones University in that day, I don't think it takes place now, there would be a group of guys that had a long box with a name of every dormitory on the women's side and another group of guys with a box that had the men's dormitories. And they would, about 9 o'clock, we would hastily put a postscript on a letter inviting a girl to uh, a date to join us for something or just communication. So we'd hastily put a postscript, lick the envelope, and then spray it with a little bit of our favorite cologne. And then we'd put it in the box, and about 9 o'clock those guys would haul off to the ladies' side of the campus, other side of the campus, and go to each one of the dorms and unload those letters from the guys that were living on the other side of the campus. Then they would pick up the letters from the girls' dorms. Each one of the girls' dorms were writing to guys on the guys' side, so they would load those into the appropriate box, and they would bring them back. I lived in grades and different dormitories while I was there. And then they'd bring them to the boys' dorm and dump them in the lobby right on the floor. Guys would scramble. I'm guessing the girls did the same thing. Never saw it over there. But the guys would scramble looking, did I get a letter? Did I get a, a note from my girl or someone who uh, I, I'm hoping would be that? The letters were sealed, sprayed with that perfume. And by the way, Paul talks about we are in this picture in chapter 2, We are the perfume, I could call this the perfume and parchment of Christianity because he uses those two illustrations. He says as he's describing the Roman triumphal procession that every Roman was familiar with, with the conquering general followed by his sons and then those that had been captured, the priest, the Roman priest would be out there with their incense burners and it meant life unto life as he says in the passage or death unto those who are about to meet the wild beast in the arena. Uh, so I hope at some point in your life you've received a love letter. I hope at some point in your life you've written love letters and experienced what Paul and really my own personal experience is describing here. Paul loved the people in the churches that God had used him to plant. And he wrote love letters to them. He really is describing a love letter in this passage of Scripture. 
But unfortunately, that love that he had for them wasn't always reciprocated. He told them of his love and more importantly of God's love, but that love wasn't always reciprocated by everyone in those churches. In fact, some at the church at Corinth rejected Paul's leadership, questioned his apostleship, and were beginning to believe another gospel, which was not a gospel at all. Whenever there is the genuine, and Paul had preached the genuine gospel, the true gospel, Wherever there is the genuine, there will always be someone trying to pass on something that is fake. We know that whether it be paintings or counterfeit money or whatever it might be. Wherever there is the genuine, someone's going to try and pass on the counterfeit. As the gospel of grace began to spread in the Gentile world, a counterfeit gospel was also being preached. And they would follow Paul around in his evangelistic party. So a false counterfeit gospel was beginning to appear. And we know those people in the New Testament as the Judaizers. Sometimes they're called the legalists. So they were those that said, well, we believe in Christ, but we also are hanging on to the law. They were the legalists in that they felt that the way that you are saved is by believing in Christ and keeping the law, and the way that you grow is by believing in Christ and then following the law. That was dealt with at the Jerusalem Council. Acts chapter 15 dealt with that, and they said, that's not true. But these people were coming into the churches that Paul started and deceiving and confusing the new converts. They taught that the believer is perfected by following the law of Moses. By the way, legalism always plagues Christianity because it's always easier to measure outward religion. It's always easier to measure outward religion than inward righteousness. We don't have a righteousness meter that we can put up to someone's heart or someone's head when they walk into the church or any other place and say, yep, got some righteousness there imparted from Christ. But it's easier to look at outward or external religion. So the test of genuine ministry, because Paul is talking about this, and this subject comes up again in 2 Corinthians, the test of a genuine ministry is changed lives. That's the point he's making here. The test of genuine ministry is changed lives. It's not necessarily numbers. Sometimes we talk about nickels and noses, or people in the pews, and we're not against that. We want Everybody to hear the gospel, everybody under the preaching of the word of God. But the test of true ministry is not nickels and noses or people in the pew. It is change life. And it's not even flattering letters of recommendation or commendation, which they cite here that Paul did not have. That's not the true test of a genuine ministry. So in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 3, Paul's commendation is mentioned. His commendation comes from the lives of changed people. And then in verses 4 through 6, Paul's confidence, he says, I don't put any confidence in my own self or my own ministry. My confidence is in God and the Holy Spirit's working in your life. So Paul commends to us this commendation that comes from God and this confidence. So I've entitled my message, Love Letters. Hope you've received some. Hope you've written some, but if you haven't, you're holding in your lap one from God. This is a love letter from the Father in heaven 
that has shown us how much he really does love us and will continue to do so all the way to glory. So in verses 1 through 3, I've kind of outlined it this way, the proof of a genuine ministry, the proof of genuine ministry. Paul says he starts with a question, and it refers back to the previous chapter because there were people that were coming, and they were commending themselves and they had letters of commendation, letters of endorsement, letters of recommendation. And Paul says, hey, wait a minute, I don't have those letters. He says in verse 1, do we begin again to commend ourselves? Because he had to talk about that a little bit in chapter 2 because they were doubting his apostleship. They were doubting his, his anointing from God. Do we begin again to commend ourselves or do we need as some others epistles, the old word for letter, epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? What does he say? You, you are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read by all men. People know how much I love you and you're my love letter because I brought Christ to you. That shows you how much God loves you and how much I loved you. Verse three, clearly you are an epistle of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh. That is the heart, your heart. It was not uncommon in the first century Christian world for Christian workers to have letters of commendation. Matter of fact, Paul wrote letters of commendation. In Romans chapter 16, verse 1 and 2, he recommends to the church at Rome, Phoebe. And he does that with others. He talks about Titus and Timothy. No one's going to love you like them. They've been a yoke fellow with me. He does letters of commendation, even in his own epistles, we could say. So it was not uncommon for that to take place. But Paul didn't have any of those. The false apostles brought with them letters of endorsement and commendations from supposed important people. Some of them may have been real people. Some of them may have been plagiarized or fake letters, maybe I would say, that were not real, false letters that came from the apostles back in Jerusalem. We don't really know, but they brought these letters of commendation. But because Paul didn't have those kinds of letters, some of his critics at Corinth were claiming that his ministry was unauthorized, that it was invalid. You didn't bring to us any letters of recommendation. You didn't bring any letters of commendation. We don't know that you're the real thing, is what the gossip was in the church at Corinth because of the false teachers saying he doesn't have these letters. Paul was astounded. Paul was astounded by that charge, and he countered that charge with saying, what does he say here? Wait a minute. You are my letter of commendation. You are our epistles written in our hearts, known and read of all people throughout Macedonia, throughout Acacia, throughout the world, throughout the Roman world. People can see how much God loves you. You can see what I did while I ministered with you for 18 months. You're a living letter of mine is what he's saying. So he's astounded by their charge, and he answers it in verse 2. Paul is really like citing an exhibit. This is exhibit A. You're exhibit A, he's saying. God used 
me to win you to Christ and to establish the church at Corinth. What greater proof, what greater validation, what greater commendation would you want? The fact that you're now in Christ. I don't need any other letters is what he's saying. It is a sad thing when a person measures his worth by what people say about him instead of what God knows about him. Some people would rather have letters of recommendation, and probably many of us I've written, I don't know how many letters of recommendation of people that were leaving our church, going to another church, or staff members that were taking a ministry, or whatever it might be, someone that's joining a military branch, or doing something in the government that needs a letter of a character reference. I've, I've written hundreds of them, I'm sure. So it's not an uncommon thing. But we don't want to go on what people say about us. We want to go on what God knows we are, because he knows all. And that is the difference between reputation and character. Reputation is what people think you are. Character is what God knows you are. The testimony of changed lives is still the strongest recommendation for any minister or any ministry. The fact that there are people on the back trail that you leave in your wake or that are part of the ministry whose lives have been changed because you've handled the word of God, because you've given them the truth, you've won them to Christ, you've discipled them in the faith. That is the greatest commendation that any minister or any ministry could ever have. Not just the numbers, but change lives that people have come to Christ. Paul regarded himself and his helpers as the pin that God used. Look at, again at verse 3. He says, clearly, you're the epistle. You're the parchment, is what he's saying. You're the parchment. Earlier, he refers to the perfume in chapter 2, but here he's referring to the parchment. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us. In other words, written by us. You're the love letter that we wrote, and he goes on to continue the analogy, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, and not on tablets of stone, that was not uncommon, clay tablets, tablets of stone, even parchment was around, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. So Paul continues his analogy. He says, God used me to write into your heart the truth, and the ink was the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit did the work. You are the tablet, and God did this work. Further, God wrote his love letter, not on tables of stone, but on flesh. In your heart is what he's saying. In other words, he had done tables of stone with the Ten Commandments. And the Israelites were unable to follow those Ten Commandments because they're sinners, just like all the rest of it. He gave us the Decalogue. They were unable to follow that. But now he gives us his Spirit, and the Spirit is able to enable us to follow him, to obey him. In verses 1 through 3, I see proof of genuine ministry. In verses 4 through 6, I see Paul trusting in divine sufficiency trusting in divine sufficiency to diffuse any charge that he was boasting as he did in chapter 2 he says here in verse 1 do we begin to commend ourselves so he says 
what in verse 4, we have this trust through Christ towards God. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves. So Paul is saying to diffuse that he was being a braggart, that he had accomplished a great work. He lets the air out of that. And Paul refuses to take any credit for the Corinthians' changed lives. He gives all of the credit, all of the glory to God. He strongly affirmed that he was unqualified to produce any dramatic change in anybody's life. That's true for us. I met with someone this past week, said he got saved, settled his salvation here earlier in the year. If someone got saved here, it wasn't because of you, it wasn't because of me or someone else. We're simply instruments. It's God that does the saving. That's the point that, that Paul is making. It is God that changes lives. We're simply instruments. We're like the pen in the hand of God, and the Holy Spirit is the ink. He ascribed all the glory to God, verse 5. Now, look at verse 6. According to verse 6, the Mosaic Covenant or the law, as we referred to it. The Mosaic Covenant demanded Israel follow the letter of the law and obey its command. He who disobeys in one point is violated all of it, is condemned by all of it. And we understand, being sinners, the people of Israel could not fulfill the law's demand. The law wasn't given to save people. We all get that. In the New Testament, it's referred to as the schoolmaster or the slave that takes them to school or even teaches them, trains this young understudy. So the law teaches us, it reminds us, I can't obey God. No matter how disciplined I am, no how diligent I am, I can't obey God in every area. So the law teaches us that we're sinners. And we need something outside of ourselves. In this case, of course, is Jesus Christ in his atoning blood. We need something outside of us to save us. And we need something outside of us to come within us, to enable us. We often say is grace is God's unmerited favor towards a sinner and his enabling power for the saint. We need grace today as much as we did on the day that we got saved grace saves us grace grows us grace enables us we get that so he's talking about the mosaic covenant it condemned everyone it taught them that they were sinners in need of a savior by contrast he mentions in verse six the new covenant which is the shed blood of christ the testament that we call the New Testament. The, this new covenant operates in the power of the Spirit. It is the Spirit that gives life. It is He who brings sinners to a knowledge of God. The old covenant demanded death for violating the law, whereas the new covenant offers life to sinners through Jesus Christ. A few weeks ago in our studies here in the adult Bible classes, we are studying sanctification. And in my class, and probably many of the other ones, we quoted a little verse that says this. John Bunyan evidently wrote this. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives neither feet nor hands. Better news the gospel brings, it bids me fly and gives me wings. What a contrast between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. 
The Old Covenant demands certain things, but it doesn't enable us to do them. The Old Covenant makes us realize how sinful we are and how inept we are to follow God. The New Covenant bids us to do it, and it gives us the power, the enablement through the Holy Spirit to do it. So the New Covenant is so much superior, so much more superior to the Old Covenant. And God had been promising that. But he had to prepare the world, he had to prepare his people. God's first covenant was external, the law. God's second covenant is internal. We internalize it because the Holy Spirit helps us do that. Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 and 33, promise the new covenant. He says, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their heart. That's what Paul is talking about right here, that the law will be in our heart. The Holy Spirit will ink it into our very life. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their heart. I will be their God and they shall be my people. It's promised and it's delivered as well. The law can make us conform. There are a lot of laws, civil law in our society, but specifically the law in the Bible can make us conform, but it's, it's grace that transforms. We're not trying to just conform to what good Christian people do. It is the Holy Spirit of God with the grace of God that transforms us and empowers us to do what we could not do. So the fact that God provided a fresh covenant indicates its superiority over the old covenant. If the old covenant could give life, as Paul says, it would have stayed in place. If the old covenant was all that God wanted to do, he wouldn't have given us a new covenant. But the new covenant is superior to the old covenant. The old covenant had to come, but it was replaced by a superior covenant, the covenant that involves the death of Christ. So a true gospel preacher does not preach salvation by following rules, by conforming to what is maybe even in the Bible. We call that moralistic preaching. Moralistic preaching is basically saying, be good, do right, follow the Bible. That's moralistic preaching. That's basically legalism. Good preaching is not moralistic preaching. Good preaching, Bible preaching, is not just legalistic preaching. It's not just rituals, you know, following certain rituals, you know, make us better people and absolve us of our sins. Good preaching is not legalism. Good preaching is not ritualism. Good preaching is not ceremony. What does he say? Those are all but a shadow of the things to come. They picture certain things. They're a type of certain things. But what does Paul say? The substance, Colossians chapter 2, verse 17, is Christ. The cleansing, the ability to, to follow God's desire, those are all shadows of what comes when we trust Jesus Christ. So Paul says those are a shadow. The real preaching, a real biblical ministry, points people to Jesus Christ as the answer. Preachers who 
major on rules and regulations keep their congregations in a dark cloud of guilt. It kills joy. It uh, removes any effective witness for Christ because you never feel like you're good enough. You feel condemned. You feel guilty. And you just struggle with living and feeling like you can't please God. Christians who are constantly measuring themselves, comparing themselves with other Christians, soon discover they are depending upon their flesh to help them do better than others instead of depending upon the Spirit to enable them to be the kind of person God wants them to be and to do the work of the Spirit. We judge a merchant by the goods that he sells. We judge a craftsman by the quality of his work. And it's sobering for me to realize as pastor that the kind of church that we have is judged by the Christians that we produce. Now, that's not up to me, certainly entirely. Certainly it's the work of God we recognize. But just as a craftsman is recognized for his craft and the quality of his work, or a merchant for his wares, a church is recognized by the type of Christian that they produce. Are they godly? Do they love the Lord? Do they share their faith? Are they diligent in their Christian experience? People judge us by what goes out of here. We could very easily say, whether we like it or not, we are an advertisement. We are the advertisement for Christianity. The house of the Lord is in the hands of his followers, we could say. The house of the Lord is in the hands of his followers. We could literally say, as Paul is saying to the Corinthians, you are living letters. The only Christianity someone may ever read the only Bible that someone may ever read is your life. He says, you are living letters. That's what he's saying here. Verse 2, your epistles that the Holy Spirit has written in your heart. You're a living letter. You're a sermon in a suit. You may be the only Bible someone ever reads. So he's challenging the Corinthians. He says, I don't need validation from the apostles back in Jerusalem to validate my apostleship or my ministry, he says, I'm looking at you. You're the validation of real ministry, he's saying to the Corinthian believers. You're the proof of my ministry, he's saying to them. The most eloquent endorsement that any Christian can have the most eloquent endorsement that any Christian can have is a testimony of changed lives. It may start with your family. It may extend to your greater family. It may go to your workplace, to your neighborhood, to people that you meet and that you know. But the greatest endorsement that any Christian can ever have is when they uh, leave this world that they leave behind people who've come to Christ, people whose lives have been affected by your life. That's the greatest endorsement that could ever happen. Ink on paper fades, and ink on paper can be forged. So ink on paper can 
fade and be forged, but a soul that has been saved will last throughout eternity. By God's grace and with the help of the Holy Spirit, all of us should be writing love letters. Love letters. In other words, writing into the lives of people the truth of the gospel. Individuals brought to salvation and brought to maturity through Christ and our witness. May that be the case. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that we can be living letters. I know I'm a living letter from Ed, my roommate back many, many years ago in Grand Rapids, before I was a Christian. He lived the life. He shared his faith. And over a period of time, it brought me to Christ. So I thank you for the living letter of Ed Lindsley. I thank you that each of us have the privilege of writing the truth, bringing the truth through love and through the power of the Holy Spirit to others that do not know you. And they are a testament. They're a testimony. They are, are the commendation of God that we're real, that we're sincere, that we have the truth. So help us as we're reminded this morning by Paul's letter that we need to be sowing the seed, not throwing it angrily, but sowing the seed lovingly to those around us and then nurturing it with our tears, with our prayers, because we know that those who go forth weeping will come again someday bringing their sheaves with them. So help us. We need your enablement. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to live exemplary lives so it might raise questions with people that we know and so that we might tell them of the Savior who's changed us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.